Thank you, Parker and Catherine and Dan and Jody and David and Janice for beautiful worship tonight. We're live in the historic sanctuary at First Baptist Church of Amarillo. The doors are locked and we're social distancing, but we are here live in the sanctuary uh, coming to you. Last week we looked at Acts chapter 18. If you turn to that chapter and we'll quickly move to 19, but want to ease into chapter 19. You remember in chapter 18, we were finishing the second missionary journey, and in verse 19 of chapter 18, they came to Ephesus, and they urged Paul to stay longer at Ephesus, and Paul said, if the Lord wills, I will return, verse 21, and he set sail from Ephesus. Then he goes down to Antioch, verse 22. He reports to the church there at Syrian Antioch about all the Gentiles who've believed on this second missionary journey. And having spent some time there, we're not told, verse 23, how much time, but he's there back at the home mission base for a while. He departed, instead of sailing straight to Ephesus, that's where he's headed. That will be about a a three-year stint for the mission headquarters for this third missionary journey. Corinth, you remember, was the mission central, about 18 months for that second missionary journey. In the first missionary journey, there wasn't a center so much as he was actually traveling uh, the whole, whole time. Well, in verse 23, he goes through Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples, places he'd earlier made churches. We learned last week of an individual by the name of Apollos in Alexandria, and he's from Egypt. Remember, he's very impressive orator, has the ability to speak well. He's mighty in the Scripture. He refutes the Jews. But do you remember the odd thing about him? In verse 25, he only knew about the baptism of John the Baptist. He did not know to be baptized in Christ. And so he learned that from Aquila and Priscilla, the fellow leather workers with Paul, who taught him the full way of Christ. Well, when we come to chapter 19, we pick back up with Apollos. And it came about that while Apollos was in Corinth, Apollos by Aquila and Priscilla had been told about the marvelous work that Paul had begun in Corinth of the church there. He asked to be sent there. He was sent there. So Apollos is at Corinth. He just left Ephesus. And now Paul comes to Ephesus, 19.1. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there was a Holy Spirit. And he said unto them, Into then what baptism were you baptized? And they said unto him, You see it? Into John's baptism. Who does that remind you of? Apollos who was a follower of John the Baptist, who had to be taught about the baptism into Christ. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul laid his hands upon them. The Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. 
Well, Paul made his way to Ephesus through the territories of the churches he had begun before, and there he finds this group of disciples, and they had not yet received the gift of the Spirit. Now, if you really like formulas, you're not going to like Acts. Some people like to read Scripture and put everything in a formula that the Spirit comes at this time. That's not going to work for you if you're reading Acts. Sometimes the Spirit comes before they're baptized with water. Sometimes the Spirit comes seemingly at the same time when they're baptized with water. And sometimes the Spirit comes after they're baptized with water. And there's a reason in each case. And sometimes it had to happen for the apostles to lay hands on them so the apostles themselves could see that the Spirit had come upon them. You remember back in Acts chapter 10... Cornelius was a God-fearer, a Gentile, and Peter goes to his house. The Spirit had invited him to come, and he's preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And while he's preaching, the Spirit just comes down on them. They start speaking in tongues, and, well, the Spirit comes before baptism in that case. And Peter says, well, they've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. I, I guess i got to baptize them with water, you see. So it comes in different orders. So don't try to put the Holy Spirit in a box. That's kind of a silly thing anyway, isn't it, that you could put the Holy Spirit in a box? These gentlemen, I'm just going to say they're on their way to believing. Whether you'd say they believe yet or not, they don't have the Spirit, but they're on their way. They're called disciples. They're willing to, to obey all the revelation they receive. That's all God can ask of anyone. That's what Cornelius did. He was a God-fearer. God sent more revelation. They followed the... Cornelius and his family followed the full revelation. So these disciples, well, there's no doubt when Paul's through with them that they're full believers, is there? We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Well, into what baptism were you baptized? Well, into John the Baptist. Now, you remember that John the Baptist himself had said that I must decrease, that Jesus must increase. And he was a voice crying in the wilderness, make way the path of the Lord. Do you know even today in some parts there are followers of John the Baptist in churches that are oriented around this baptism of John the Baptist. And, and so that some of that still takes place today. We have to find them and tell them that John was not the one, but he pointed to the one. So Paul says, verse 4, John baptized for repentance. But he was telling people to believe in Jesus, who was coming after him, that is, Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. Now, in this case, they're baptized with water first. It's the opposite of Cornelius. See, you don't like boxes here. At least the Spirit doesn't like them. So they, they are baptized in water first in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. What is the evidence they've received the Spirit in Acts? They began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And nicely, there's 12 of them. Uh, it makes a nice group of gentlemen like the disciples. 12 new men who have been baptized in the name of Jesus as Lord. Verses 8 through 22, we have Paul's work in Ephesus. And he entered the synagogue. Now, this is a synagogue he'd been in before on the second missionary journey. And they begged him to stay. And he said, I can't, but the Lord wills, I'll be back. Now he's back with them 
on the third missionary journey. And notice what happens. He entered the synagogue, continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, usually it says persuading them about Jesus as the Christ. Kingdom of God is more gospel language. That's what you might expect to hear uh, from Matthew would say kingdom of heaven. Mark would say kingdom of God. And Luke would say kingdom of God. That's language of the gospel. So it's interesting here. Well, who's writing for us? Luke here, the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened, some of the Jews, disobedient, speaking evil of what? The way, verse 9. In Acts, the Christian movement is called the way. And Christians are called followers of the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. So they speak evil of the way, that is following Jesus, before the multitude. He withdrew from them and took away the disciples, the ones that he convinced that Rabbi Jesus was the Christ, reasoning daily with them in the school of Tyrannus. Now, Tyrannus was probably an operator of a school. He had a lecture hall, and so he, Paul just moves over to Tyrannus's school building, and he's the owner and teacher, and he begins to teach in his building, having been removed from the synagogue. Sometimes he moved to the house like he did in Corinth, but in this case, he moves to the school of Tyrannus. And this took place, Now we've already had some time here. Now, two more years, so that all who lived in Asia, in that a bold statement, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. This was a pervasive and extensive ministry of Paul, so he could say all who lived in Asia had the opportunity to hear the word. It didn't matter if they were Jews or they were Greeks, they heard the word. Now, in the next story here, we have a full vision of the power of God through the ministry and presence of the Apostle Paul. There is nothing exactly like this anywhere in Scripture, except I can think of the passage when Peter walks by and his shadow heals people. That's the most parallel element in Paul's life when we have this here. And God, verse 11 was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs or aprons, pieces of clothing, were even carried from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Paul had so surrendered himself to the Spirit that much like Peter's shadow cast upon the sick would heal them, why, it was, took nothing but a handkerchief of Paul's or, or an element of his clothing. They would take it to the sick or the demon-possessed, and they would be healed or delivered from the power of hell. Verse 13, but there's some Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And that day there were men who made their money 
having pseudo-scientific, pseudo-clairvoyant powers. They practiced exorcism, and all they needed was another bag of tricks, and the name of Jesus might be another name that they could use to cast out a demon. And so when they were casting out demons, trying to make a living, getting paid for casting out the demon, they would use whatever power or God or goddess they might be able to invoke. What might work? What might unlock it? Kind of reminds me of some of the apps on my phone want me to change my password every 30 days. And I think that's because the old one is working so well, they want me to change it. I mean, why do you change it? No one's figured this one out. It's working quite fine. Why do I need to change it? And as I change it, they'll say, well, no, now you need a capital letter. No, now you need a star or an asterisk. Oh, I should have told you the star, should I? You, now you need something to make it work. And so you have to keep changing your password. And it gets more and more complicated. So what do you do when you go on that old app? You start with your dead dog's name, right? And you think, well, maybe that's the old password. And then you try your new dog's name. And then you try your birthday or your first child's name. And you think, man, I've tried everything I know and I can't get the app to open. They tried the name of every god and goddess they could think of, every password available. And now they had a new password, the name Jesus, these sons of the Jewish chief priest trying to make a living casting out the demons. We have noted throughout Acts that the demons are always right. They know who Jesus is and the Gospels when the disciples are yet confused. And just like the demons and the Gospels, the demons in Acts, the evil spirit answered and said to these seven sons, these pseudo-clairvoyant spiritualists, now I know Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Who are you typing in my password? That was bad news for these sons. I know the name Jesus you're using. And Paul uses the name Jesus, and he gets it done. But who are you to disturb me, says the demon. It makes you know the power of Jesus and Paul in casting out demons when they cannot. And the man, verse 16, in whom the evil spirit was, leaped on them and subdued them all and overpowered them so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Can you imagine fighting these seven men, fighting demons they can't see, and they run out naked just glad to get out and leave their clothes behind? I know Jesus and I know Paul, but it's not going to go well for you, the demon says. Now, this disturbed the city. And this became known to all, verse 17, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. God even used the failed exorcism of the demonic man to make Jesus be magnified. 
Many of also those, verse 18, 18, who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. In fact, once you had seen what was happening, those who had been practicing demonic crafts, they all came and they confessed. Verse 19, they all go get their magic books and their incantations and their records of dark spiritualism, and they began burning them in the sight of all, and they counted up the price of them and found to be 50,000 pieces of silver. That's 50,000 days of work. Think about a year being 365 days of work. This is 50,000 days of work. That's the value of these books, these magic books that they burn. They don't want anything else to do with these dark practices. So the word of the Lord was going mightily, the word of the Lord was prevailing. Now, after these things, verse 21, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. This is a very important look into the travel plans of the Apostle Paul. Notice the order again. Paul wants to go to Jerusalem. But before he goes to Jerusalem, verse 21, he wants to go through Macedonia. Well, who's in Macedonia? Philippi and Lydia, and Lydia will give him an offering. And then he wants to go through Achaia. What's in Achaia? The church at Corinth that we started And after I've been there, I want to go to Rome. And he gets to Rome, he wants to go to where? Spain. All right, turn over to Romans 15. This really is prevalent in in the writing of all these letters. So you need to have in your mind this little ending, this fourth journey, we might say, some of which happened and some of which may not have happened. But we find in the book of Romans that he has this passion that he wants to go to Jerusalem. Well, let's begin in, in Romans 15 and verse 22. For this reason, I've often been hindered from coming to you. He's writing to the church at Rome. I've often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I had have had for many years a longing to come to you. He's in Corinth. He's about to go to Philippi and Corinth to pick up the offering. He's in Corinth, most likely when he writes these words. Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and be helped on my way there by you and and have first enjoyed your company for a while. So he's in Corinth where he's picking up the offering. He's writing to the church in Rome saying, I want to come to you. And after I come to you, I want you to send me for that fourth missionary journey to Spain, which probably didn't happen. Maybe it happened. We don't know. But now, before that, I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, Philippi, Lydia is Macedonia, and Achaia is Corinth, where he is now writing, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Already, you remember, he took up an offering from the Gentile church at Antioch in Syria and took it to Jerusalem because there's a famine in Jerusalem and the Christians are starving. And if 
they have received the spiritual inheritance from the Jews, and they should provide a monetary inheritance to the Jews. And so now, he's having already taken an offering for the starving Jews, who are now believers, in, in Antioch, now he's going to Lydia, and now he's going to Corinth to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, I have put my seal on this fruit of theirs. I will go by way of you to Spain and know that when I come to you, I will come the fullness of the blessing of the Christ. Now I urge you, he's nervous. He's got all this offering, and we're going to see in a minute in Acts, he's bringing missionaries with him to carry this offering. It wasn't safe to carry that money by himself. So from each church, so they can account for their own money. Some are going from Philippi. Some are going from Corinth. They're all on the ship together. They're making their way to Jerusalem. But notice he's nervous. He's very, very nervous. Strive together with me, 1530, in your prayers to God for me that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Now, back, back to Acts. You see, you see what happens? If they accept this offering... If the Judaizers accept this offering, if they accept money from Gentiles, then they've accepted the Gentiles. You see that? The Gentiles have accepted their God and their Messiah. And now the believers, some of them Judaizers, some of them not really willing to take help from the Gentiles, if they receive this offering from Macedonia and from Achaia, when he brings it and they receive it, then it will be a proclamation that indeed they have received all the Gentile ministry that he has been accomplishing to this point. Paul's nervous, and he should be nervous. I'm not going to tell you what happens when he goes to Jerusalem. You'll have to stay in the Acts study. We're not far from it. So look what happens. So in verse 22, after I've been there, I want to go to Rome. Do you know from Rome he wants to take up an offering and go to Spain? And having sent to Macedonia... Two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he's staying there in Ephesus. And about that time, there arose no small disturbance concerning the what? The way. What it's called. Now, we have a riot. What that should tell you is that Christianity was becoming so powerful in Ephesus that it was disturbing the social culture. It was, it was disturbing the marketplace. The word was out to Jews and Gentiles, and they were responding. And so, verse 24, a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with workmen of similar trades and said, Men, do you know that our prosperity depends upon this business? And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall in disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis to be regarded as worthless. 
And that she whom all Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. Well, Demetrius is a silversmith. And the temple of Artemis is a huge thing in Ephesus. And they made their money by making probably these small replicas of the temple. Now, when you see the Statue of Liberty, you go to a little shop and you buy a miniature Statue of Liberty, don't you? Because you want something to remind you of the big thing that you saw. When I went to St. Petersburg Cathedral... Uh, to St. Isaac's Cathedral in St. Petersburg, I bought a picture. It's on my wall. Why? I wanted something to remind me of my trip to see St. Isaac's Cathedral. When you went to Artemis' temple in Ephesus, you couldn't leave until you bought one of Demetrius' little silver shrines. It was a replica. And that was working well. That's how they made their money. They had a union. They had a fellowship. And this Paul guy is saying that Artemis, the goddess, is not really a goddess at all and if he keeps doing this and they'll quit worshiping gods made with hands he won't be able to sell these little temples that people thought had some power because they had visited the temple of Artemis so business wasn't going to go well for these silversmiths unless Paul quit talking against gods made with hands because they were the ones making the little temples Now, Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo, the sun god. She is the goddess of the moon. She's kind of got an eclectic group of things she represents. She's the goddess of the moon. She also is the goddess who protects women through childbirth, but she also helps men hunt. So she could help everybody with everything, and therefore lots of people wanted a little statue of Artemis. And Demetrius is just convinced they'll be out of business unless they stop Paul. And so when they heard this, they began shouting, verse 28, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, this was their economy. The city was filled with confusion. They rushed in one accord into the theater. This theater would hold, it was discovered as an archaeological masterpiece. It would hold 25,000 people. I mean, this is a substantial football stadium in our day, dragging along Gaius. We remember Gaius, remember, the host of Paul in Corinth last week. Aristarchus, another traveling companion of Paul. Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And Paul wanted to go into the assembly. The disciples had not let him. They knew it would be deadly for him. And also, some of the Asiarchs, these are politicians who were friends of his, sent to Paul, repeatedly urged him, do not go into the theater. The silversmiths are mad. Verse 32, so then some were shouting one thing and some were shouting another. It's confusion. Some of them don't know what they're shouting about. People love a riot. They just start shouting. For some didn't even know, verse 32, the cause for which they'd come together. And then a Jew by the name of Alexander tries to hush the crowd and let them know, now we're Jews and we've lived in peace with you guys for a long time and we're not really with Paul anymore, so we want you to know they won't even let him talk. He wasn't even allowed to make a defense for Jews. But when they recognized he was a Jew, they had an outcry, great is Artemis, on with our economy, keep making the shrines are saying. The town clerk, verse 35, finally gets up and says, Men of Ephesus, 
What man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and the image which fell down from heaven? Now, that's an odd little saying. We have the temple, the great temple of Artemis, and the image which fell down from heaven. We don't know what that means. It was probably an artifact, an ancient, maybe an, even an image of Artemis herself. Some of you have said maybe it was a meteorite that they'd seen fall from heaven. They thought it was prized, and they put it in the temple. It's hard to know exactly what it was, but there was some image which they claimed to have a heavenly origin that empowered the worship of Artemis. These are undeniable facts, verse 36. You ought to keep calm. Don't do anything rash. Don't go after Gaius. Don't go after Paul. If you have brought these men here who are neither robbers, they haven't robbed the temple of Artemis. They aren't blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against the men, take them to court. Let them bring charges against one another. If they have broken your ability to practice your craft, you've got the courts, use the courts. But if you want anything beyond this, let it be settled in a lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affair, since there's no real cause for it. And in connection with this, we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. If you caused a riot... Rome would come in, put an end to your freedoms, and take over. Riots made Rome nervous. We see this throughout the New Testament. Even when they're shouting, crucify Jesus, crucify Jesus, the Jews kind of play that card. Pilate, you can't let there be a riot. And so the chief of the city says, you can go to the courts if you want to. You're not going to cause a riot and ruin our freedoms. They really haven't robbed your temple, and nobody's listening to these guys anyway. But they were. They were. It's why the, the cells were down of the idols. It's why the magic books had been burned. It's why the sons of Siva, Sceva had run naked, having tumbled with the demonic powers. It's why Paul, why a mere piece of his clothing, could cast out a demon the way was powerful, and the demons were trembling. And those who made the false gods realized the real God had arrived, and everything about their life was threatened. That's the way it is when you call Jesus Messiah, isn't it? Every old god or goddess of your life is cast down and won't work anymore the magic books have to be burned, and the little temples and shrines we've created are powerless because the one true God is present in the preaching of his son and in the following of the way. Let us pray. Oh God, we see a powerful vision what it means to say Jesus is Lord. We see the power of the demons of hell unless it's the name of Jesus and one empowered by him to use that name. Father, even tonight, may we put away our little gods and goddesses 
the Artemis of our life, the magic books we lean on, may we remove them, that there would be room for him. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.